This episode of Smiling Horror is dedicated to my best friend and production manager, Jenny Tweedy. Thanks for all your help, Jenny. Welcome to Smiling Horror. I'm Gillian Knight. I'm so excited to bring you today's episode of Smiling Horror, a tribute to Edgar Allan Poe. The idea for this tribute came from a Twitter friend of mine, Laura Smith. You may remember Laura from our last episode of Smiling Horror, The Eyes Have It, with her poem, River Water. This episode, she's offered us her Poe-inspired work, The Moon, a poem. If you enjoy Laura's work, check her out on Twitter at Voyage of the Mind or on the web at www.voyageofthemind.com, where you can read her take on the mysterious death of Edgar Allan Poe. One of the reasons Smiling Horror was born was to introduce new talent, so I'm thrilled that another Twitter friend of mine, Fizzy, has graciously provided us a dramatic reading of her poem, Flawless. I don't know if it was Poe-inspired, but I thought it fit this episode nicely. To read more work by Fizzy, you can follow her on Twitter at Fizzy Twizzler. That's at Fizzy, F-I-Z-Z-Y, Twizzler, T-W-I-Z-L-E-R. My hope is that we hear more from both Fizzy and Laura in future episodes. To get things started, we'll listen to a LibriVox recording by Bob Newfeld, Edgar Allan Poe, and Appreciation. It will be followed by The Moon, a poem by Laura Smith, Flawless by Fizzy, and ending with another LibriVox Bob Newfeld recording of Poe's short story, The Black Cat. We hope you enjoy today's episode, a tribute to Edgar Allan Poe. Section 1 of the works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Bob Neufeld. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 1. Edgar Allan Poe, An Appreciation. Caught from some unhappy master, whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster, till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never, never more. This stanza from The Raven was recommended by James Russell Lowell as an inscription upon the Baltimore Monument which marks the resting place of Edgar Allan Poe, the most interesting and original figure in American letters, and to signify that peculiar musical quality of Poe's genius which enthralls every reader, Mr. Lowell suggested this additional verse from The Haunted Palace. And all with pearl and ruby glowing was the fair palace door, through which came flowing, 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 and sparkling evermore a troop of echoes, whose sweet duty was but to sing, in voices of surpassing beauty, the wit and wisdom of their king. Born in poverty at Boston, January nineteenth, eighteen o nine, dying under painful circumstances at Baltimore, October 7, 1849, his whole literary career of scarcely fifteen years, a pitiful struggle for mere subsistence, his memory malignantly misrepresented by his earliest biographer, Griswold, how completely has truth at last routed falsehood, and how magnificently has Poe come into his own. For the raven, first published in 1845, and, within a few months, read, recited, and parodied wherever the English language was spoken, the half-starved poet received ten dollars. Less than a year later, his brother-poet, N. P. Willis, issued this touching appeal to the admirers of genius, on behalf of the neglected author, his dying wife, and her devoted mother, then living under very straitened circumstances in a little cottage at Fordham, New York. Quote, Here is one of the finest scholars, one of the most original men of genius, and one of the most industrious of the literary profession of our country, 
whose temporary suspension of labor from bodily illness drops him immediately to a level with the common objects of public charity. There is no intermediate stopping place, no respectful shelter, where, with the delicacy due to genius and culture, he might secure aid, till, with returning health, he would resume his labors and his unmortified sense of independence. End quote. And this was the tribute paid by the American public to the master who had given to it such tales of conjuring charm, of witchery and mystery, as the fall of the house of Usher and Lygia, such fascinating hoaxes as the unparalleled adventure of Hans Pfaal, manuscript found in a bottle, a descent into a maelstrom, and the balloon hoax, such tales of conscience as William Wilson, the black cat, and the tell-tale heart, wherein the retributions of remorse are portrayed with an awful fidelity, such tales of natural beauty as the island of the Fay and the domain of Arnheim, such marvellous studies in ratiocination as the gold bug, the murders in the Rue Morgue, the purloined letter, and the mystery of Marie Roget, the latter a recital of fact demonstrating the author's wonderful capability of correctly analyzing the mysteries of the human mind such tales of illusion and banter as the premature burial and the system of dr tarr and professor feather such bits of extravaganza as the devil in the belfry and the angel of the odd such tales of adventure as the narrative of arthur gordon pym such papers of keen criticism and review as won for Poe the enthusiastic admiration of Charles Dickens, although they made him many enemies among the over-puffed minor American writers so mercilessly exposed by him. Such poems of beauty and melody as The Bells, The Haunted Palace, Tamerlane, The City in the Sea, and The Raven. What delight for the jaded senses of the reader is this enchanted domain of wonder-pieces! What an atmosphere of beauty, music, color! What resources of imagination, construction, analysis, and absolute art! One might almost sympathize with Sarah Helen Whitman, who, confessing to a half-faith in the old superstition of the significance of anagrams, found in the transposed letters of Edgar Poe's name the words, A God Peer. His mind, she says, was indeed a haunted palace, echoing to the footfalls of angels and demons. No man, Poe himself wrote, has recorded, no man has dared to record, the wonders of his inner life. In these twentieth-century days of lavish recognition, artistic, popular, and material of genius, what rewards might not a Poe claim? Edgar's father, a son of General David Poe, the American Revolutionary Patriot and friend of Lafayette, had married Mrs. Hopkins, an English actress, and, the match meeting with parental disapproval, had himself taken to the stage as a profession. Notwithstanding Mrs. Poe's beauty and talent, the young couple had a sorry struggle for existence. When Edgar, at the age of two years, was orphaned, the family was in the utmost destitution. Apparently, the future poet was to be cast upon the world homeless and friendless. But fate decreed that a few glimmers of sunshine were to illumine his life, for the little fellow was adopted by John Allen, a wealthy merchant of Richmond, Virginia. A brother and sister, the remaining children, were cared for by others. In his new home, Edgar found all the luxury and advantages money could provide. He was petted, spoiled, and shown off to strangers. In Mrs. Allen, he found all the affection a childless wife could bestow. Mr. Allen took much pride in the captivating, precocious lad. At the age of five, the boy recited, with fine effect, passages of English poetry to the visitors at the Allen house. From his eighth to his thirteenth year, he attended the Manor House School at Stoke Newington, a suburb of London. It was the Reverend Dr. Bransby, head of the school, whom Poe so quaintly portrayed in William Wilson. Returning to Richmond in 1820, Edgar was sent to the school of Professor Joseph H. Clark. He proved an apt pupil. 
Years afterward, Professor Clark thus wrote, quote, While the other boys wrote mere mechanical verses, Poe wrote genuine poetry. The boy was a born poet. As a scholar, he was ambitious to excel. He was remarkable for self-respect without haughtiness. He had a sensitive and tender heart, and would do anything for a friend. His nature was entirely free from selfishness. At the age of seventeen, Poe entered the University of Virginia at Charlottesville. He left that institution after one session. Official records prove that he was not expelled. On the contrary, he gained a creditable record as a student, although it is admitted that he contracted debts and had, quote, an ungovernable passion for card-playing, end quote. These debts may have led to his quarrel with Mr. Allen, which eventually compelled him to make his own way in the world. Early in 1827, Poe made his first literary venture. He induced Calvin Thomas, a poor and youthful printer, to publish a small volume of his verses under the title Tamerlane and Other Poems. In 1829, we find Poe in Baltimore with another manuscript volume of verses, which was soon published. Its title was Al-Araf, Tamerlane, and Other Poems. Neither of these ventures seems to have attracted much attention. Soon after Mrs. Allen's death, which occurred in 1829, Poe, through the aid of Mr. Allen, secured admission to the United States Military Academy at West Point. Any glamour which may have attached to cadet life in Poe's eyes was speedily lost, for discipline at West Point was never so severe, nor were the accommodations ever so poor. Poe's bent was more and more toward literature. Life at the academy daily became increasingly distasteful. Soon he began to purposely neglect his studies and to disregard his duties, his aim being to secure his dismissal from the United States service. In this he succeeded. On March 7, 1831, Poe found himself free. Mr. Allen's second marriage had thrown the lad on his own resources. His literary career was to begin. Poe's first genuine victory was won in 1833, when he was the successful competitor for a prize of $100, offered by a Baltimore periodical for the best prose story. A manuscript found in a bottle was the winning tale. Poe had submitted six stories in a volume. Our only difficulty, says Mr. Latrobe, one of the judges, was in selecting from the rich contents of the volume. During the fifteen years of his literary life, Poe was connected with various newspapers and magazines in Richmond, Philadelphia, and New York. He was faithful, punctual, industrious, thorough. N. P. Willis, who for some time employed Poe as a critic and sub-editor on the Evening Mirror, wrote thus, quote, With the highest admiration for Poe's genius, and a willingness to let it alone for more than ordinary irregularity, we were led by common report to expect a very capricious attention to his duties, and occasionally a scene of violence and difficulty. Time went on, however, and he was invariably punctual and industrious. We saw but one presentiment of the man, a quiet, patient, industrious, and most gentlemanly person. We heard from one who knew him well what should be stated in all mention of his lamentable irregularities that with a single glass of wine his whole nature was reversed, the demon became uppermost, and though none of the usual signs of intoxication were visible, his will was palpably insane. In this reversed character, we repeat, it was never our chance to meet him. End quote. On September 22, 1835, Poe married his cousin, Virginia Clem, in Baltimore. She had barely turned thirteen years. Poe himself was but twenty-six. He then was a resident of Richmond, and a regular contributor to the Southern Literary Messenger. It was not until a year later that the bride and her widowed mother followed him thither. Poe's devotion to his child-wife was one of the most beautiful features of his life. Many of his famous poetic productions were inspired by her beauty and charm. 
consumption had marked her for its victim, and the constant efforts of husband and mother were to secure for her all the comfort and happiness their slender means permitted. Virginia died January 30th, 1847, when but twenty-five years of age. A friend of the family pictures the deathbed scene. Mother and husband trying to impart warmth to her by chafing her hands and her feet, while her pet cat was suffered to nestle upon her bosom for the sake of added warmth. These verses from Annabel Lee, written by Poe in 1849, the last year of his life, tell of his sorrow at the loss of his child wife. I was a child, and she was a child, in a kingdom by the sea. But we loved with a love that was more than love, I and my Annabel Lee, with a love that the winged seraphs of heaven coveted her and me. And this was the reason that long ago, in this kingdom by the sea, a wind blew out of a cloud, chilling my beautiful Annabel Lee, so that her high-born kinsmen came and bore her away from me, to shut her up in a sepulchre in this kingdom by the sea. Poe was connected at various times and in various capacities with the Southern Literary Messenger in Richmond, Virginia, Graham's Magazine and the Gentleman's Magazine in Philadelphia, the Evening Mirror, the Broadway Journal, and Godet's Ladies' Book in New York. Everywhere Poe's life was one of unremitting toil. No tales and poems were ever produced at a greater cost of brain and spirit. Poe's initial salary with the Southern Literary Messenger, to which he contributed the first drafts of a number of his best-known tales, was ten dollars a week. Two years later, his salary was but six hundred dollars a year. Even in 1844, when his literary reputation was established securely, he wrote to a friend expressing his pleasure because a magazine to which he was to contribute had agreed to pay him twenty dollars monthly for two pages of criticism. Those were discouraging times in American literature, but Poe never lost faith. He was finally to triumph wherever preeminent talents win admirers. His genius has had no better description than in this stanza from William Winter's poem, read at the dedication exercises of the Actors' Monument to Poe, May 4, 1885, in New York. He was the voice of beauty and of woe, passion and mystery and the dread unknown, pure as the mountains of perpetual snow, cold as the icy winds that round them moan, dark as the eaves wherein earth's thunders groan, wild as the tempests of the upper sky, sweet as the faint far-off celestial tone of angel whispers fluttering from on high, and tender as love's tear when youth and beauty die. In the two and a half score years that have elapsed since Poe's death, he has come fully into his own. For a while, Griswold's malignant misrepresentations colored the public estimate of Poe as a man and as a writer. But, thanks to J. H. Ingram, W. F. Gill, Eugene Didier, Sarah Helen Whitman, and others, these scandals have been dispelled, and Poe is seen as he actually was, not as the man without failings, it is true, but as the finest and most original genius in American letters. As the years go on, his fame increases. His works have been translated into many foreign languages. His is a household name in France and England. In fact, the latter nation has often uttered the reproach that Poe's own country has been slow to appreciate him. But that reproach, if it ever was warranted, certainly is untrue. W. H. R. End of Andrew Allan Poe, an appreciation. The Moon, a Poem, by Laura Smith. Read by Gillian Knight. A Murder of Crows. Something about the moon that night stole the thoughts from my head and filled me with unceasing dread. It called to me with a ravenous voice, its silver shadow crossing my face, and drew me out into a place where cars lay parked in gleaming rows, like coffins covered by falling snow. 
Three crows on a pole whistled and screeched. It seemed they were calling to me. I raised my head and looked up at the sky. The moon had grown and was reaching for me with silver hands and a gaping maw. While the cacophony rang across the lot, I ran and ran to the thud of my heart. At last, when the noise had gone, I sat on a bench in the midst of the snow and watched a man across the way, a man in clothes of gray. When he turned, I saw he carried a scythe. I cried out and fell on my knees and grasped at his feet. Death, I cried. Death I've seen. I've seen. At that moment, I woke in my bed, and the moon's waxing shadow fell on my head. Flawless by Fizzy You never took the time to appreciate my pretty little thoughts. That's why I chopped you into big chunks and buried you under the library's wooden floors with all the other sub-zero feeling morons. Tsk, tsk, oh, so flawless. senses reject their own evidence. Yet mad am I not, and very surely do I not dream. But tomorrow I die, and today I would unburthen my soul. My immediate purpose is to place before the world plainly, succinctly, and without comment, a series of mere household events. In their consequences, these events have terrified, have tortured, have destroyed me. Yet I will not attempt to expound them. To me they have presented little but horror. To many they will seem less terrible than Baroque's. Hereafter, perhaps, some intellect may be found which will reduce my phantasm to the commonplace. Some intellect more calm, more logical, and far less excitable than my own, which will perceive, in the circumstances I detail with awe, nothing more than an ordinary succession of very natural causes and effects. From my infancy I was noted for the docility and humanity of my disposition. My tenderness of heart was even so conspicuous as to make me the jest of my companions. I was especially fond of animals, and was indulged by my parents with a great variety of pets. With these I spent most of my time, and never was so happy as when feeding and caressing them. This peculiarity of character grew with my growth, and in my manhood, I derived from it one of my principal sources of pleasure. To those who have cherished an affection for a faithful and sagacious dog, I need hardly be at the trouble of explaining the nature or the intensity of the gratification thus derivable. There is something in the unselfish and self-sacrificing love of a brute which goes directly to the heart of him who has had frequent occasion to test the paltry friendship and gossamer fidelity of mere man. I married early, and was happy to find in my wife a disposition not uncongenial with my own. Observing my partiality for domestic pets, she lost no opportunity of procuring those of the most agreeable kind. We had birds, goldfish, a fine dog, 
rabbits, a small monkey, and a cat. This latter was a remarkably large and beautiful animal, entirely black and sagacious to an astonishing degree. In speaking of his intelligence, my wife, who at heart was not a little tinctured with superstition, made frequent allusion to the ancient popular notion which regarded all black cats as witches in disguise. Not that she was ever serious upon this point, and I mention the matter at all for no better reason than that it happens just now to be remembered. Pluto, this was the cat's name, was my favorite pet and playmate. I alone fed him, and he attended me wherever I went about the house. It was even with difficulty that I could prevent him from following me through the streets. Our friendship lasted in this manner for several years, during which my general temperament and character, through the instrumentality of the fiend intemperance, had, I blush to confess it, experienced a radical alteration for the worse. I grew, day by day, more moody, more irritable, more regardless of the feelings of others. I suffered myself to use intemperate language to my wife. At length I even offered her personal violence. My pets, of course, were made to feel the change in my disposition. I not only neglected, but ill-used them. For Pluto, however, I still retained sufficient regard to restrain me from maltreating him, as I made no scruple of maltreating the rabbits, the monkey, or even the dog, when by accident or through affection they came in my way. But my disease grew upon me. For what disease is like alcohol? And at length, even Pluto, who was now becoming old and consequently somewhat peevish, even Pluto began to experience the effects of my ill-temper. One night, returning home, much intoxicated from one of my haunts about town, I fancied that the cat avoided my presence. I seized him, when, in his fright at my violence, he inflicted a slight wound upon my hand with his teeth. The fury of a demon instantly possessed me. I knew myself no longer. My original soul seemed at once to take its flight from my body, and a more than fiendish malevolence, gin-nurtured, thrilled every fibre of my frame. I took from my waistcoat pocket a penknife, opened it, grasped the poor beast by the throat, and deliberately cut one of his eyes from the socket. I blush, I burn, I shudder, while I pen the damnable atrocity. When reason returned with the morning, when I had slept off the fumes of the night's debauch, I experienced a sentiment half of horror, half of remorse, for the crime of which I had been guilty. But it was, at best, a feeble and equivocal feeling the soul remained untouched. I again plunged into excess, and soon drowned in wine all memory of the deed. In the meantime the cat slowly recovered. The socket of the lost eye presented, it is true, a frightful appearance, but he no longer appeared to suffer any pain. He went about the house as usual, but, as might be expected, fled in extreme terror at my approach. I had so much of my old heart left as to be at first grieved by this evident dislike on the part of a creature which had once so loved me. But this feeling soon gave place to irritation, and then came, as if to my final and irrevocable overthrow, the spirit of perverseness. Of this spirit philosophy takes no account. Yet I am not more sure that my soul lives than I am that perverseness is one of the primitive impulses of the human heart, one of the indivisible primary faculties or sentiments which give direction to the character of man. Who has not a hundred times 
found himself committing a vile or a silly action for no other reason than because he knows he should not have we not a perpetual inclination in the teeth of our best judgment to violate that which is law merely because we understand it to be such this spirit of perverseness i say came to my final overthrow it was this unfathomable longing of the soul to vex itself to offer violence to its own nature to do wrong for the wrong's sake only that urged me to continue and finally to consummate the injury i had inflicted upon the unoffending brute one morning in cold blood i slipped a noose about its neck and hung it to the limb of a tree hung it with the tears streaming from my eyes and with the bitterest remorse at my heart hung it because i knew that it had loved me and because i felt it had given me no reason of offence hung it because i knew that in so doing i was committing a sin a deadly sin that would so jeopardize my immortal soul as to place it if such a thing were possible even beyond the reach of the infinite mercy of the most merciful and most terrible god on the night of the day on which this cruel deed was done i was aroused from sleep by the cry of fire the curtains of my bed were in flames the whole house was blazing it was with great difficulty that my wife a servant and myself made our escape from the conflagration the destruction was complete my entire worldly wealth was swallowed up and i resigned myself thenceforward to despair i am above the weakness of seeking to establish a sequence of cause and effect between the disaster and the atrocity but i am detailing a chain of facts and wish not to leave even a possible link imperfect on the day succeeding the fire i visited the ruins the walls with one exception had fallen in this exception was found in a compartment wall not very thick which stood about the middle of the house and against which had rested the head of my bed the plastering had there in great measure resisted the action of the fire a fact which i attributed to its having been recently spread about this wall a dense crowd were collected and many persons seemed to be examining a particular portion of it with very minute and eager attention the words strange singular and other similar expressions excited my curiosity i approached and saw as if graven in bas-relief upon the white surface the figure of a gigantic cat the impression was given with an accuracy truly marvellous there was a rope about the animal's neck when i first beheld this apparition for i could scarcely regard it as less my wonder and my terror were extreme but at length reflection came to my aid the cat i remembered had been hung in a garden adjacent to the house upon the alarm of fire this garden had been immediately filled by the crowd by some one of whom the animal must have been cut from the tree and thrown through an open window into my chamber this had probably been done with the view of arousing me from sleep the falling of other walls had compressed the victim of my cruelty into the substance of the freshly spread plaster the lime of which with the flames and the ammonia from the carcass had then accomplished the portraiture as i saw it although i thus readily accounted to my reason if not altogether to my conscience for the startling fact just detailed it did not the less fail to make a deep impression upon my fancy for months i could not rid myself of the phantasm of the cat and during this period there came back into my spirit a half sentiment that seemed but was not remorse i went so far as to regret the loss of the animal and to look about me among the vile haunts which i now habitually frequented 
for another pet of the same species and of somewhat similar appearance with which to supply its place. One night, as I sat half-stupefied in a den of more than infamy, my attention was suddenly drawn to some black object reposing upon the head of one of the immense hogsheads of gin or of rum which constituted the chief furniture of the apartment. I had been looking steadily at the top of this hogshead for some minutes, and what now caused me surprise was the fact that I had not sooner perceived the object thereupon. I approached it and touched it with my hand. It was a black cat, a very large one, fully as large as Pluto, and closely resembling him in every respect but one. Pluto had not a white hair upon any portion of his body but this cat had a large, although indefinite, splotch of white, covering nearly the whole region of the breast. Upon my touching him, he immediately arose, purred loudly, rubbed against my hand, and appeared delighted with my notice. This, then, was the very creature of which I was in search. I at once offered to purchase it of the landlord, but this person made no claim to it, knew nothing of it, had never seen it before. I continued my caresses, and when I prepared to go home, the animal evinced a disposition to accompany me. I permitted it to do so, occasionally stooping and patting it as I proceeded. When it reached the house, it domesticated itself at once, and became immediately a great favorite with my wife. For my own part, I soon found a dislike to it arising within me. This was just the reverse of what I had anticipated, but I know not how or why it was. Its evident fondness for myself rather disgusted and annoyed. By slow degrees these feelings of disgust and annoyance rose into the bitterness of hatred. I avoided the creature. A certain sense of shame and the remembrance of my former deed of cruelty preventing me from physically abusing it. I did not, for some weeks, strike or otherwise violently ill-use it. But gradually, very gradually, I came to look upon it with unutterable loathing, and to flee silently from its odious presence as from the breath of a pestilence. What added, no doubt, to my hatred of the beast was the discovery, on the morning after I brought it home, that, like Pluto, it also had been deprived of one of its eyes. This circumstance, however, only endeared it to my wife, who, as I have already said, possessed in a high degree that humanity of feeling which had once been my distinguishing trait, and the source of many of my simplest and purest pleasures. With my aversion to this cat, however, its partiality for myself seemed to increase. It followed my footsteps with a pertinacity which it would be difficult to make the reader comprehend. Whenever I sat, it would crouch beneath my chair or spring upon my knees, covering me with its loathsome caresses. If I arose to walk, it would get between my feet and thus nearly throw me down, or fastening its long and sharp claws in my dress, clamor in this manner to my breast. At such times, although I longed to destroy it with a blow, I was yet withheld from so doing, partly by a memory of my former crime, but chiefly, let me confess it at once, by absolute dread of the beast. This dread was not exactly a dread of physical evil, and yet I should be at a loss how otherwise to define it. I am almost ashamed to own Yes, even in this felon's cell I am almost ashamed to own that the terror and horror with which the animal inspired me had been heightened by one of the merest chimeras it would be possible to conceive. My wife had called my attention more than once to the character of the mark of white hair of which I have spoken, and which constituted the sole visible difference between the strange beast and the one I had destroyed. The reader will remember that this mark, 
although large, had been originally very indefinite. But by slow degrees, degrees nearly imperceptible, and which for a long time my reason struggled to reject as fanciful, it had, at length, assumed a rigorous distinctness of outline. It was now the representation of an object that I shudder to name. And for this, above all, I loathed and dreaded and would have rid myself of the monster had I dared. It was now, I say, the image of a hideous, of a ghastly thing. Of the gallows. Oh, mournful and terrible engine of horror and of crime, of agony and of death. And now was I indeed wretched beyond the wretchedness of mere humanity, and a brute beast whose fellow I had contemptuously destroyed, a brute beast to work out for me, for me a man, fashioned in the image of the high God, so much of insufferable woe. Alas! neither by day nor by night knew i the blessing of rest any more during the former the creature left me no moment alone and in the latter i started hourly from dreams of unutterable fear to find the hot breath of the thing upon my face and its vast weight an incarnate nightmare that i had no power to shake off incumbent eternally upon my heart. Beneath the pressure of torment such as these, the feeble remnant of the good within me succumbed. Evil thoughts became my sole intimates, the darkest and most evil of thoughts. The moodiness of my usual temper increased to hatred of all things and of all mankind while from the sudden frequent and ungovernable outbursts of a fury to which i now blindly abandoned myself my uncomplaining wife alas was the most usual and the most patient of sufferers one day she accompanied me upon some household errand into the cellar of the old building which our poverty compelled us to inhabit the cat followed me down the deep stairs, and, nearly throwing me headlong, exasperated me to madness. I aimed a blow at the animal, which, of course, would have proved instantly fatal had it descended as I wished, but this blow was arrested by the hand of my wife. Goaded by the interference into a rage more than demoniacal, I withdrew my arm from her grasp and buried the axe in her brain. She fell dead upon the spot, without a groan. This hideous murder accomplished, I set myself forthwith, and with entire deliberation, to the task of concealing the body. I knew that I could not remove it from the house, either by day or by night, without the risk of being observed by the neighbors. Many projects entered my mind. At one period I thought of cutting the corpse into minute fragments and destroying them by fire. At, re at another I resolved to dig a grave for it in the floor of the cellar. Again I deliberated about casting it into the well in the yard about packing it in a box as if merchandise with the usual arrangements and so getting a porter to take it from the house finally i hit upon what i considered a far better expedient than either of those i determined to wall it up in the cellar as the monks of the middle ages are recorded to have walled up their victims for a purpose such as this the cellar was well adapted its walls were loosely constructed, and had lately been plastered throughout with a rough plaster, which the dampness of the atmosphere had prevented from hardening. Moreover, in one of the walls was a projection, caused by a false chimney or fireplace, that had been filled up and made to resemble the red of the cellar. I made no doubt that I could readily displace the bricks at this point, insert the corpse, 
and wall the whole up as before, so that no eye could detect anything suspicious. And in this calculation I was not deceived. By means of a crowbar I easily dislodged the bricks, and having carefully deposited the body against the inner wall, I propped it in that position, while with little trouble I relayed the whole structure as it originally stood. Having procured mortar, sand, and hair with every possible precaution, I prepared a plaster which could not be distinguished from the old, and with this I very carefully went over the new brickwork. When I had finished, I felt satisfied that all was right. The wall did not present the slightest appearance of having been disturbed. The rubbish on the floor was picked up with the minutest care. I looked around triumphantly, and said to myself, Here at least, then, my labor has not been in vain. My next step was to look for the beast which had been the cause of so much wretchedness, for I had, at length, firmly resolved to put it to death. Had I been able to meet with it at the moment, there could have been no doubt of its fate but it appeared that the crafty animal had been alarmed at the violence of my previous anger, and forbore to present itself in my present mood. It is impossible to describe, or to imagine, the deep, the blissful sense of relief which the absence of the detested creature occasioned in my bosom. It did not make its appearance during the night, and thus for one night at least, since its introduction into the house, I soundly and tranquilly slept. I slept even with the burden of murder upon my soul. The second and the third day passed, and still my tormentor came not. Once again I breathed as a free man. The monster, in terror, had fled the premises forever. I should behold it no more. My happiness was supreme. The guilt of my dark deed disturbed me but little. Some few inquiries had been made, but these had been readily answered. Even a search had been instituted, but of course nothing was to be discovered. I looked upon my future felicity as secured. Upon the fourth day of the assassination, a party of the police came very unexpectedly into the house, and proceeded again to make rigorous investigation of the premises. Secure, however, in the inscrutability of my place of concealment, I felt no embarrassment whatever. The officers bade me accompany them in their search. They left no nook or corner unexplored. At length, for the third or fourth time, they descended into the cellar. I quivered not in a muscle. My heart beat calmly as that of one who slumbers in innocence. I walked the cellar from end to end. I folded my arms upon my bosom and roamed easily to and fro. The police were thoroughly satisfied and prepared to depart. The glee at my heart was too strong to be restrained. I burned to say, if but one word, by way of triumph, and to render doubly sure their assurance of my guiltlessness. Gentlemen, I said at last, as the party ascended the steps, I delight to have allayed your suspicions. I wish you all health and a little more courtesy. By the by, gentlemen, this, this is a very well-constructed house. In the rabid desire to say something easily, I scarcely knew what I uttered at all. I may say an excellently well-constructed house. These walls—are you going, gentlemen? These walls are solidly put together. And here, through the mere frenzy of bravado, I rapped heavily with a cane which I held in my hand upon that very portion of the brickwork behind which stood the corpse of the wife of my bosom. But may God shield and deliver me from the fangs of the arch-fiend. 
No sooner had the reverberation of my blows sunk into silence than I was answered by a voice from within the tomb, by a cry, at first muffled and broken like the sobbing of a child, and then quickly swelling into one long, loud, and continuous scream, utterly anomalous and inhuman, a howl, a wailing shriek, half of horror and half of triumph, such as might have arisen only out of hell, conjointly from the throats of the damned in their agony, and of the demons that exult in the damnation. Of my own thoughts it is folly to speak. Swooning, I staggered to the opposite wall. For one instant the party upon the stairs remained motionless, through extremity of terror and of awe. In the next, a dozen stout arms were toiling at the wall. It fell bodily. The corpse, already greatly decayed and clotted with gore, stood erect before the eyes of the spectators. Upon its head, with red extended mouth and solitary eye of fire, sat the hideous beast whose craft had seduced me into murder and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman. I had walled the monster up within the tomb. End of The Black Cat by Edgar Allan Poe Thank you for listening to Smiling Horror. We always want to support and promote horror writers. If you would like your story read on our podcast, please submit it to us via email at gillian.knight.writer at gmail.com. If you enjoy listening to Smiling Horror, please subscribe and you'll be notified when a new episode is available. We value your feedback. Please comment on our Facebook page or leave us a voicemail at 561-221-2767. All stories, unless identified as open source, are copywritten and should not be reproduced without the permission of the author. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and will join us again next time. Until then, and as always, have a scary good time.